Finding your way to a balanced way of living is the key to health and happiness. Each week on Choosing the Balanced Life with Diabetes, you'll hear tips and tools for a happier and healthier life. Here's your host, Anita Westlake. As parents, we often worry that our children are not eating healthy foods. I know I did. And you might have a child that's a picky eater. They just don't want to try new things. And this could be so frustrating. How do we get how do we get our children to eat healthy foods? And with the rise in childhood obesity, what children eat has become the focus of many, from the first lady to local schools. But according to my guest, Dr. Dana Rose, in her new book, It's Not About the Broccoli, it's not about the nutritional mindset, but more about teaching our children healthy habits that lead to a lifetime of healthy eating. Today, to share some tips and strategies, is my guest, Dr. Dana Rose. Hi, Dina. Thank you for joining me today. I'm so pleased to be here, Anita. Thanks for having me on. So we're here to talk about um, helping parents and empowering parents on getting their children to develop some healthy habits. It's the new year. That's what everyone's focused on, right? Eating well. Eating well, absolutely, our health. And having um, children mm, not eating so well or worrying about it can be very stressful and a challenge, especially if you have a picky eater. I think you're so right. I mean, I think that eating, getting kids to eat right is up there. It's probably the number one or number two thing that parents of young children worry about. Sleep would be the other one, but nature takes over where sleep is concerned, and eating is just so much trickier. Well, as you said, nature will take over, and they'll fall asleep wherever, but what you may not want them to do or stress about them doing is grabbing anything like candy or, you know, a handful of marshmallows because they're hungry. And right there, parents, well, they're not eating properly. What am I doing to my child? How do I get them to eat properly, make wiser choices and get them to enjoy it? And if they don't enjoy it, too bad, so sad. Well, you know, one of the things that you just said, which is just so important for parents to realize is that children are making decisions about what they're eating from the very beginning. Even babies, you know, know that lip lock or they can move their head away or something like that. So we can't make kids eat. But we have to figure out as parents how to create an environment where they choose the foods that we want them to choose. And so some of that is about teaching even the youngest children how to make the right choices. And some of it is about shaping our interactions with them. And some of it is about shaping the food environment that the kids are exposed to. Very interesting. So there, it sounds like three primary areas to focus on. Well, we really have to think of this as a teaching opportunity. I mean, every other aspect of parenting Parents go into it knowing that they have to teach their children something. But when it comes to food, we have these, like, mixed messages in society. So on one hand, we're told, you know, just put the food down, you know, put the peas down and let your kids work it out themselves because they eat what's put in front of them, and if they don't, they'll sort of work it out later. So that's sort of one message, which is this really doesn't have to do with you. You just provide the food. And the other message is is that we really can't expect young children to eat well because we all know little kids don't like that kind of food. Oh, you should just wait it out, and when they get older, they'll eat better. So that's also another hands-off approach that doesn't really work very well. So what I'm trying to encourage parents to do is to rethink this whole dynamic and to realize that it is a teaching opportunity. Kids do need to be taught how to eat well. They do need to be taught how to taste new foods. There's a lot of skills that go into eating right, and that if things are going wrong, it's not really about the food. So that's the good news. You can stop searching for the perfect recipe. Uh, <laughs> I like that. I mean, that's trying. <laughs> most people think that if they could just find the right recipe, but then if they do find the right recipe and their child eats it today, and you know, like he doesn't eat it tomorrow, so it's just the kind of thing that makes parents nuts. So you can stop doing that. Um, it's not really about the food. It's really about the interactions. And if we change how we interact with our children, we can definitely change how they eat. But sometimes it takes a little bit more time than parents are willing to put in. And so it gets frustrating and and it gets difficult because it is a learning process that takes some time. Well, it sounds like it can be work. And everybody, you know, is limited in time. If you have two parents working 
and you're getting home and you're trying to put um, something healthy in front of your children and all of a sudden you're you're up against they don't they don't want to eat any of this and you're doing your best that can be really trying and finding the time to work through that can be very difficult well it's really frustrating because let me tell you if i put some time into cooking a meal and my daughter turns her nose up at it which she doesn't do now that she's a teenager but of course she did it when she was 2 and 3 it's very frustrating and the kitchen has to close sometime not just because you know, we can't spend, spend our whole lives in the kitchen, but because we've got other things to do and parents are tired. And also the other thing that hampers parents, but it's totally understandable, is that we go into this dynamic being kind of afraid that our kids are going to be hungry and we have to, you know, forestall that. And so once that becomes our MO, then we're really kind of tied to giving them what they want. And that is the beginning of a slippery slope that seems like it's making things easier today. Oh, let's just give him the chicken nuggets. We know he'll eat that. But every time we kind of kick this can down the road, we make the potential for change so much more difficult. And I'll tell you that if you set up the right structure, if you stop thinking about nutrition and start thinking about habits, it actually makes your life easier. It cuts down on the things you have to remember. It cuts down on the things you have to do. And your kids start to eat better it, but there is a little bit of a transition period where it can be a little bit hard. So what would be um, some of the three things you can start doing to get this ball rolling? Well, I think that the or first focus thing... focus on, let's put it yeah, that maybe I, focus on would be a better word. I, I think the thing is, is that, um, and I, I find this endlessly fascinating, I want to say, is that if you talk to most parents about nutrition even if they don't think they know a lot about nutrition, they do know a lot more than they think, and they can have a very nice, educated conversation about it. I think that the public health discussion based on the original food pyramid and now my plate has been extremely successful. However, if you ask parents what are good eating habits, most of the time when I've done this, parents get a little bit embarrassed that they can't just, you know, those habits just don't roll off their tongues. They sort of hem and haw and they say, oh, I don't know, hmm, eating vegetables or not eating, you know, too much food. And so I think that the first thing that we have to do as a nation, um, and, and we can just start here, is, is by talking about what are good eating habits. And there are only three that translate everything about nutrition into behavior. And they are the basis of the original food pyramid, and they're the basis of the My Plate icon. And if you go, you know, into the government websites, they talk about these three, these three habits, but they just don't spell them out to the public. And so I'm going to do that for you. Great. They are proportion, variety, and moderation. And they, they're very simple, um, but they are about behavior. So proportion is like ratios, right? It's eating healthier food more frequently than everything else. And I'll come back to that in a second and talk about how we can implement that. But this is the, this is the principle that most people sort of talk about when they think about the word balance. And the reason I don't like to use balance is because balance has come to mean both proportion and also the second habit, which is variety, which is just eating different foods from day to day. And balance has also come to mean the third habit, which is moderation, which is not eating beyond, you know, when you're hungry. So, so eat only when you're hungry, stop when you're full. So that's sort of about portion size. Um, but it also means, moderation also means uh, not to eat when you're bored or sad or lonely. Let's not teach children to eat for emotional reasons, and, and, and we, we do that inadvertently all the time. I, I certainly did by mistake. Um, so the word balance, when it comes to mean all these different things, just stops being an effective word. And so I really strongly encourage people to think about proportion, variety, and moderation instead of about nutrition, because if you actually practice these three habits, the nutrition will definitely come along for the ride. Whereas when we start thinking about nutrition, it's really easy to get those habits wrong. So for instance, we could start, you know, giving our children, you know, something like highly sweetened yogurt every day or twice a day. I know plenty of parents who do that because they say it has calcium in it, but of course it also has sugar and it's just not a great product. And of course, it also pushes the entire diet out of whack. So many kids in our culture eat way too many bread products, uh, they eat much too much cheese, 
and, and not enough fruits and vegetables. So their diets are kind of out of whack. So it's thinking about these habits. And you can implement strategies we can talk about in a second, but you can implement strategies to get these habits going wherever you are, wherever your children are, wherever your family you know, diet is you can start implementing these three habits now. It's not like you have to wait for the perfect diet to come along first. No, and and I agree with that. Now, um, I love this because this is, and I think I mentioned this to you, is a world that I came from, which was portion, well, variety. You would hope we had variety. That was really up to us, and moderation. So all those things came to play when I became a diabetic as a child and we had to look at all these things. And it did help me, I have to tell you, in building solid blocks and a foundation to where I am today and my relationship with food. I, I'm really, I'm not surprised because it seems like a really healthy approach to thinking about food where you have to get those, you've got to get those habits, those elements right. Well, you've taken this, uh, oh, about a hundred miles further than what we were ever taught. <laughs> and that this was, you know, a while ago. <laughs> and, but really what they did was they, they taught us proportion and having variety as in the food groups. So we would pick things from food groups that we could have. And of course we would learn to eyeball, you know, size and amounts. And then we were on a schedule for eating. And this really helped, um, at that point, it helped a diabetic manage their food intake, activity, and medication sure. in the case of a type 1 diabetic, which I am. But honestly, it gave me some wonderful foundational blocks, uh, although it was difficult because we were limited in our food. We didn't have, you know, okay, I, I want something now, or my friends are all having an apple. And we were so, they were so strict with us that even an apple could throw you off gear. So some of that, you know, being relaxed, I could still see where this is just such a, a solid foundation to give to children. You know, I think that you're right that it is, you know, most parents can be a little bit more relaxed than the schedule that you were on. And so you're right, that makes it a little bit easier. But the idea that there needs to be some kind of schedule or some kind of structure to eating is something that most parents could really benefit from implementing in their homes. So we've gone the other way in our culture. You know, it used to be that people ate three meals a day. Maybe kids had a snack in the afternoon. But there wasn't this idea that we should graze and eat constantly all through the day. And there, the research on that, I want to say, just as an aside, does not show that everybody is healthier if they eat six meals or five you know, small meals a day. And, and there are countries where people do that and countries where people don't do that. And so the research is really out on that. But that make, makes me approach the idea of eating these small meals throughout the day. It's really sort of a philosophy of eating. And it's okay, but when parents translate that for their children, what we've also started to see is that those snacks, when the kids are very little, those snacks tend to be the kinds of things that we know are healthy, like the fruits and vegetables. But by the time they're toddlers and a little bit older than that, the snacks start to be things like candy and cookies and, and sweetened beverages. Potato so, chips. <laughs> salty snacks. Right. The things that the food industry has decided are snacks. So, I, first of all, I like to tell people, you know, you need to start thinking about snack as um, a time when you eat, not, but not a type of food, right? It's not like there's a special thing called snack food, even though the food industry would like us think that, to think that there is. But the, but the larger point about having a structure that you described that you had about when you could eat, when children graze all day long, they don't have any incentive, first of all, to eat at meals, right, because they know that there's just going to be more food, you know, in an hour, so why should they eat? But also, and, and let me just say, and that the, the snack food, as we just described, is often preferable to the, to the meal food. Oh, but absolutely. The, Ooh. But the other thing is, is that we're doing our kids a real disservice by not giving them ample time to actually feel hunger. So when you have a break, when there's times when you can eat, when there's times when you cannot eat, and that's a plan that I call the eating zones rule, um, 
you, you give your kids time to actually develop an appetite. And not only is this going to increase the kinds of foods that they're going to eat at the meal, but it's really important in terms of teaching them about being hungry and, and about being full. Because, you know, everyone in society, in our society, talks about how kids instinctively know when they're hungry and they're, and they're full. And while that's true for most babies, most parents have interfered with that for children by the time they're two or three. And even if parents haven't, if parents have done a really great job, when children start to layer language onto their feelings of hunger and fullness, they don't always get it right. I always tell, because it's about language, right? I always tell people when my daughter was little, she would sometimes look up at me and hold her arms up, and she, what she wanted was for me to pick her up. And what she would say is, down, down. <laughs> right, but she wanted to go up. <laughs> but she didn't know the words yet. You know, she was trying to figure it out. So when you hear parents say that they're small children, are you hungry or are you full? Those children are, are most often just randomly picking words <laughs> that they think match with what's going on, but they don't really know yet. And that's how come a child can say that he's hungry or full and then do the exact opposite, just like my daughter wanted to go up and sit down. Because layering language is a very difficult thing to do on top of feelings, and that takes time too. So having the structure that you talk about, which I just think is so fabulous, is the really a good guideline for parents. And that's often the first step in changing the dynamic in the household, which is for parents to say to their kids, you know, we're going to eat now. Oh, you don't want to eat? That's okay. You don't have to. But there's no more food until the next meal or snack. It's not punitive. It's not like, well, you know, you can't eat. It's just saying, well, this is when we're eating and there'll be food again. You might get hungry, but you'll be okay. And, and, and giving children that kind of structure. And the added benefit of that I just want to add here is that when we, when we jump as high as we can as soon as a child says that he's hungry. We are inadvertently teaching another lesson that we really don't want to teach, which is you really should never be hungry. Be afraid of hunger. And that really is a precursor to overeating. So having the structure and approaching it in a calm way and letting kids know that it's okay to be temporarily hungry is all good. So I'm a a big thumbs up for structure. Well, I I like that. I haven't heard that. I like that um, comment that you made that be afraid of hunger because we, we are afraid of hunger. We say all the time, um, in general, parents say all the time, are you hungry? Oh, they're hungry. Oh, that child is hungry. Oh, give that child food. We're just cramming it in their faces continually. Oh, they're hungry. Let's make sure we have a special snack for them because they could be hungry before dinner. They might be hungry after dinner because they're not eating dinner. And around the holidays, I saw this. Right. Right. I mean, I have to be sympathetic with parents who are really are really living a little bit in fear, rightfully so, in my opinion, of that hunger-induced meltdown. Nobody wants to have that. But I do want to say that kids can learn not to have that meltdown, and they get over that much at a much younger age than we give them credit for. And we do have to be a little bit more along the lines of, well, you're hungry that's okay, we'll be eating in a half an hour instead of, oh, you're hungry? Let's find something for you now. And I read a study once where American parents were much more likely to think that if their children were hungry, it was okay to compromise on the quality of the food. So my child's hungry. The only thing that is around right now are chips. I'd rather not my, you know, my kid didn't eat these chips, but she's hungry, so okay. Whereas in other countries, they might say, my child's hungry. The only thing that's around are chips. Hmm, lunch is in 30 minutes. I'll have her wait. Now, what study was this? I'm very curious where it would yeah, say, I, you know. I, I'd have to look that up. I don't, I don't have that study at the tip of my tongue right now. But, but it, it's, it's a pattern that just makes sense, right? Well, by say, of course, I, I see what you're saying is give them something rather than nothing. But waiting a half an hour and having them, you know, have a have a meal rather than having that snack that isn't so healthy, I, I don't look at that as a big deal. 
Right. And actually, one of the things that parents, I, I always tell parents this, if you've got a young child in the sort of three, four, five, maybe even six-year-old, although, you know, you, you just know what your own child is capable of, a lot of times the whole evening can become a lot more successful if instead of trying to give our kids a snack when they're hungry around 4.30 is if we move their dinner time up to about 4.30, let them have the real meal, and then if we want to have the benefit of that family dinner or both parents aren't home until you know, 6.30, 7 o'clock at night, it's okay because the kids can come to the table, they can have their snack then, or they can just have dessert then, or they can pick at whatever's at the table then. But a lot of times by moving the meal to match when kids are hungry is better than having them graze and try and match their hungry hunger to our schedule. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And In fact, I, I know um, when I was young, they recommended that strongly in the case of a diabetic child because well, we I would couldn't think that makes sense, right? You can't, and you can't wait because you need to eat when you need to eat. And it was also insulin timing. So if you took your insulin at right. a certain time, we didn't have, uh, they were just starting to look at multiple injections. They didn't have the pump. They didn't have many things that they have today. And even with these conveniences that they have the today for small children and counting carbs and having the pump, it's still about measuring the amount of um, insulin you take to cope with the food intake. That doesn't mean, well, you know, you have that, let's say, um, cushion. You have a cushion now to say, well, I'd like to eat here rather than there. But for the most part, it's still much better management when you can regulate some times. And I think it's better for your overall health, whether you are a diabetic or not. And to look at your proportion size, look at the variety of foods you're eating and build those solid blocks, whether you're a child or an adult. So if the adult's teaching the child, they'll start embracing this way of eating also. Yes, but I do want to say that we put a little bit too much stock in the idea that if parents just model and, and, and show kids how to eat right, that the kids will automatically start to eat that way as well. So what I really advocate is that parents say out loud to their children what the habits are that they are actually teaching. We don't have to sit and hope that our kids will pick up the lesson. So that's what I love about these three habits because they're very easy to say to children. In fact, they're much easier than trying to explain nutrition because we can just say we eat more of these foods than those foods or we eat different foods from day to day or we only eat when we're hungry and we stop when our tummy's full. Those are very easy for even two-year-olds to start to understand. And the benefit of saying it out loud to our kids is that then the food world and the decisions that the parents are making start to make sense. One of the reasons that kids fight with their parents over food is, well, sometimes because it's a successful strategy. <laughs> but, yeah, wear so, them down. <laughs> right. But one of the reasons is because if you look at the world through your kids' eyes, then you start to see that the food environment feels very arbitrary to them. They don't really know why sometimes they can eat something, why sometimes they can't eat something, why sometimes they have to have five bites and other times they have to have two bites. And the world just seems like their parents are making it up. Of course, their parents have reasons for each of those decisions, but the kids don't know what those reasons are. So if we start to talk to our children about things like proportion, variety, and moderation, about not being afraid of being hungry, about all of the hidden lessons that are in, in, the, in the teaching dynamic of eating, then the food world starts to make sense. And the more structure and regularity that we can put into place, the less our children will fight with us. So if they know that when they say they're hungry and we look at our watches and we say, lunch is in 30 minutes and let's go you know, color for a little while, if they know that the whining and crying and temper tantruming is not a strategy that's going to work, then they'll stop doing that. And it doesn't take very long for that to happen. And so then life becomes a lot more pleasant for parents. And it's mostly through improving communication. Well, 
what do you do, which is great, and I agree with all of that, but in the case of a picky eater, and we all have dealt with picky eating, but some are quite severe. And I have a, a friend of mine whose daughter wanted to eat for, for a while there, nothing but nachos and um, salsa. <laughs> and she went a couple of days with virtually eating nothing because that's what she wanted and that's what she was going to get. And so she got it. Right. And she ate nachos. I, I still can't believe I'm repeating this, but it's true. It's absolutely <laughs> true. She ate nachos and salsa and cheese for probably three months mm-hmm. and gained quite a bit of weight because, mm-hmm. you know, but she said, hey, I'm getting all f- uh, three food groups. I mean, she wasn't, uh, she was smart about it and, and wanting to get what she wanted to get. And and her mother being concerned and, well, she's getting something it got completely out of hand. So what would be a way to kind of introduce a picky eater into variety? Yeah, that that is a, a the real that is a real issue. I love the story that you just told. And it is true. It's <laughs> I'm true. sure it is. Um, you know, and it's up there with the this child who will only eat egg sandwiches that daddy makes, not if mommy makes them, those kinds of these are all really about control issues. Um, the thing that's important to remember here is that we are not going to win this struggle by out-controlling our kids. So a lot of parents approach picky eating by thinking that they just have to lay down the law and that if they're going to lay it down, then the kid will listen to me and then the, the parents kind of white-knuckle it for as long as they can. And sometimes they have a little temporary win, but usually they end up giving up and giving it to the child. And of course, what this does for the child is reinforce the value of the child sticking with whatever he or she has said, you know, held out for. So that's just that's just a recipe for losing. So what I, what I suggest for parents is uh, a couple of steps. The first thing that we have to, to remember is that um, people are picky for different reasons and So we need to be a little bit sympathetic to whatever it is, if we can figure it out, what's causing them to be picky. So having a little bit of empathy can go a long way. And to to realize that what we need to do with our kids is to rebuild some trust before we're going to make progress. Because what happens in a dynamic like this is that control and power are kind of like a ball that parents and children are throwing back and forth to each other. So first I have the power, now you have the power, but we never really share it. And so parents and children become adversaries, and an adversarial relationship cannot succeed. And it's adversarial for a variety of reasons, but what's most important of about this is that the more adversarial or how the longer the adversarial relationship goes on, the more kids distrust their parents. So the more that par- uh, children distrust their parents, the more they come to the table already with their defenses locked and loaded. So I always tell parents the first step is that we have to reduce the stress in the household. And that's going to happen first by having a frank conversation with the child and saying things have been rough, you know, we've been struggling about this or that, I'm sorry, you know, it must be horrible to be feeling like someone's always trying to make you eat things you don't want to eat, you know, to sort of have that kind of conversation where the child feels heard and understood that you're coming over to her side of the table. So instead of sitting across the table, I want you to, you know, parents to join their kids on the same side so that they're on the same team. And you want your kids to feel like you really understand what they're going through. And you're supporting them. And you're supporting them. Yeah. Now, a lot of parents get afraid at this step because they think what it means is saying, well, I'm not going to make her do something. I'm not going to help her, you know, move off this dime. And that's where the second part of the conversation comes in because we need to also be frank with our kids and we need to say something along the lines of, you know, so I know it's awful when you think I'm trying to get you to eat foods you don't want to eat. Um, So we're not going to do that for a while and I'm never going to make you eat anything you don't want to eat. So that's an important ingredient to this conversation, right? I'm not going to force you anymore. We're not going to fight about this anymore. But then we need to say, but look, I'm your parent and my job is to help you learn how to taste new foods, 
and then you can decide whether or not you want to eat them. My job is to teach you how to navigate places where there's not going to be food that you're familiar with because one day you'll go to camp or you'll go to college and leave home. and You'll be at you know, other people's homes, your friends. Right. So we get to say to them, look, but there's a bunch of skills you need to learn, and you may not want to learn them, but I'm going to teach them to you, but I'm not going to make you eat anything. So th- there's a real difference here between teaching a child how to taste food or teaching a child how to cope in a, in a food environment that's not particularly friendly to them without making them eat food and without also giving in to feeding them nachos every night. So that's the middle ground that I, that I want to talk about, and it's where authoritative parenting lives, and that's the parenting style that's been found to be the most effective. But it starts with this conversation, and the conversation really is there to build some trust. And then we have to let a little bit of time pass where we're not, you know, fighting and stressing about food. So we sort of give in to being the permissive parent for, you know, a week or something, just so that the tension really does um, subside. And then if we're just talking about how to get past picky eating, what we really need to do is think about turning our attention to teaching our kids to taste food, not to eat food. And that's a really big distinction. And most parents I know think that they do that when they say, just taste it, and if you don't like it, you don't have to eat it. Oh, that's a very popular thing to say. I said it with my own children. Just try it. If you don't like it, that's fine, but try it. That's right. But if you have a picky eater, the problem with that statement is the child has, whether consciously or not, like I don't think that kids are are really trying to manipulate us consciously, but when you make that sentence, a picky eater has already decided before the food goes in his mouth that he doesn't like it because he doesn't want to eat it. He knows he doesn't want to eat it. So he's going to say, I don't like it. And that's how come kids say, I don't like it, before it even hits their mouth, right? So even if your kid will put it in his mouth, he's already decided he doesn't like it. Now it gets into the box of, I don't like it. And part of the reason is because, again, through his eyes, if I do like it, I'm going to have to eat it. Now, Uh most parents think, but if you like it, don't you want to eat it? Well, you would think that. You'd think, oh, you'd be pleasantly surprised. Look at that. And then you'd want to eat it. But many kids don't want to eat the food or think they don't want to eat it before they enter the situation, either because they want to control what they eat or because they had it in their mind that they wanted to eat something else tonight. Even if I like, you know, a steak, I might be in the mood for lasagna kind of thing, right? Um So there are many reasons why kids might not want to eat the food at hand. And some of it is just because they might feel like razzing their parents that night. Who knows? (laughs) Right. Well, giving in. I'm not going to like it, and you're not going to make me like it. Or pride, exactly. Ego, all those kinds of issues. So that sentence, you know, just just try it, and if you don't like it, you don't have to eat it, actually can backfire. So this is one of the reasons. The idea that you have to eat the food that you're tasting is too much pressure for many, many picky eaters. So we need to back off and really, really change our goals. So we What the can, heck do we do then? How well, do you get them to try new foods or you know, introduce these wonderful things into their lives? So, so there's, two different, there's two different phenomena here. One is what you do with the food that they are actually eating. And, and I'll get to that in a second because I, I want to just keep talking about how you introduce new foods. The issue here really is about sensory education, right? Teaching children what things look like, smell like, you know, what their texture is so that they can become better predictors about what a food will be like. So just imagine if you go to a restaurant and there's something on the menu that you don't know, you know, you're not familiar with some dish, you're going to say to the waiter, you know, what is this? And the waiter's going to tell you it's like it's fish or something, right? And then you're going to come back and you're going to say, yeah, but is it a white fish or is it a strong fish or is it a steak kind of fish? Or You're going to start probing because you know a lot about fish. And you're asking the waiter to help you put that dish that you don't know about into a category so you can predict what it will be like and so that it's not completely unfamiliar to you before it gets in your mouth. I just did this Saturday night. <laughs> now imagine, so did you say to the waiter, what is this? 
I asked him, I, I said, I have never had this type of fish before. Is it a white fish? Is it light? Right, exactly. What, what kind of sauce? It doesn't have this uh, cumin in it now, does it? Is it sweet? Is it more on the savory side? You don't That's use a right. lot of salt, do you? And he basically, and I will tell you, this is powerful because he created the dish in my mind. Mm-hmm. Right. And that made the decision on whether I would order it or not. That's right. Now, imagine that you said to the waiter, and now I've been in situations, I don't know if this ever happened to you, I've been in situations when I've been traveling where there's a dish on the menu and I don't even know what it is. Like I was once somewhere where there was a dish and, and I didn't even know whether it was it meat, was it not meat. And then once we figured out it was meat, I wanted to know what kind of meat. <laughs> you know, it was so foreign to me that I had no idea. But imagine that you ask the waiter, you know, what's this dish? And your waiter just said, mmm, it's good. You should try it. No way. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that awful? I'm sorry. I don't know him. I don't trust him. Forget it. (laughs) But even if, even if someone, even if my best friend said, oh, this is so good. You have to taste it. I would say, what what is is it? it? (laughs) And if then they said, no, 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 you have to taste it. It's really good. And that's what we do to our children all the time. We say, this is a kiwi. Mmm, it's good. And your child is thinking, I don't know what a kiwi is. It's got black little things in it. What is that? It looks like an eyeball. I don't know if it's a fruit. I don't know if it's a vegetable. I don't know if it's an animal. I don't know. I don't know if it's clay. Like, I don't know what it is. So. Very true. Wow. That kids, really brought it home. Our kids don't have enough information in their repertoire. Like, you know, a sort of like a card catalog in their head. And they're not sophisticated enough to do this anyway. So they, um, they can't make very good predictions. And children who are picky are even more frightened of getting it wrong for some reason. For different people, it's different reasons why they might be like that. So the more we can teach them about food, about what things smell like, um, and, and get from them their impressions, uh, there was a wonderful study that was done in England um, with some like four and five year olds where kids were asked to describe some food and and the one that stands out in my mind is a is a boy who said that the cauliflower looks like um, a sheep brain and so if that was the association that you made with cauliflower you might not want to eat it <laughs> I would be horrified I would run from it of course right. you wouldn't want to put that in your mouth. And so most of us don't really know what's going on in our kids' minds because we just get into this, try it, no, try it, no. You know, it just becomes this fight. It's good for you. Eat it, darn it. I'm trying to help you. (laughs) That's right. So if we just back off and we genuinely want our kids to taste or, or smell or explore like a science experiment, what we're going to do is we're going to not ask them to eat new foods at all We're not going to serve them new foods for a period of time. Eventually, when they become really good tasters, there are strategies, and I I outline these in the book, but there are strategies that you can use for bringing new foods to the actual table. But in the beginning, everyone's going to be done a big favor if we just start to uh, introduce kids to the science experiment of tasting or looking or hearing with a pea-sized sample of something new. We're going to discuss it. It's green or is it crunchy? Does it pop? Does it smush? What does it smell like? We don't have to do all the senses for every food every single time. But we want to sort of get into that ballpark so that kids start to become curious about the food. And the safety of that pea-sized trial is what's going to allow them to take a deep breath, relax a little bit, come to the table without their defenses up. We're no longer forcing them to do something they don't want to do. We are engaging their curiosity. And if they won't taste something, we just back off and we talk about what it looks like. Or we talk about what it feels like to smush it or roll it or, or you know, splat it or something like that. And that brings kids along. And eventually, and it doesn't take a very long time, once we've reduced the pressure, eventually children start to become curious about the food. And sometimes this can take a few months. But it took your child 
more than a few months to get as entrenched in being picky. So we have to balance it out that way. And have patience, because that, that does take patience. But we have to be honest as parents and not pretend that we're okay if they just taste it when what we're really hoping for is that they eat it. And that's why we have to separate out tasting from eating. Well, I can see that because you would think if they've tried it, well, why don't you want more? Here, I've made it. Let's eat it. And it can, you know, some people think it's wasting food too if they're playing with it and they get annoyed. You see a lot of that. But really, you do have to be patient. Well, there is some wasting of food if we want our kids to eat food and they're just pushing around their their plate. And that is frustrating. And that's another reason why we don't want to serve the food when it's new for for our kids. You have to think about about switching what is a very pressure-filled and negative environment to something that is more positive. And here's a good example that I hope will put it into perspective. You know, when our kids are learning how to walk, and they they get they pull themselves up and they take that first tentative sort of drunk man stumble across the floor yeah. <laughs> and they walk and you like film two, it <laughs> right and they walk two steps and they fall flat on their butts parents get excited and they say you walked of course they didn't walk right but we're all excited about it and what we don't say is you know i was really hoping you'd run ah And that's what we do with food. We say, one bite? That's all you're going to do? One bite? You can eat more than that. You can do more than that. And if we think about this the same way it is about learning how to walk, when they take that one bite, if we really are expecting them to taste and not eat, we start to applaud the taste and give them recognition for a job well done instead of saying, yeah, that's it. God, you suck at this. <laughs> yeah, you can do more than that. Go ahead, have another one. Or exactly. it's the old bribery. If you have three bites of that, I'll let you watch another half an hour of television. That's right. That's right. Or if you eat three more bites of that, you can have your dessert. So, now, what do you think of that? Do you think that holding um, uh, part of the meal hostage in order to eat other parts of the meal uh, works? So, for instance, if you eat the sheep brain, the cauliflower, (laughs) you get to have dessert. But if you don't eat it, no dessert. So here's the thing. Um, The research is just so clear on this one, is that every time we make our children eat their vegetables by bribing them with dessert, we are reinforcing the vegetables are bad and the dessert is good. And we are also reinforcing that we hold the ultimate power. So it's not good on that front, and it it really does make kids not like the food they've been forced to eat. They're not enjoying it. They're holding their breath for dessert. That's right. During their time. That's right. So it's it's just doing the opposite of what we want it to do. I, I really think that we need to step back from the nutrition mindset, which is saying if I get three more bites of vegetables into my kid, I've done my job, right? I got the nutrients into my kid. We have to step back from that way of thinking, and we have to start thinking about long-term habits. So I always encourage parents to think of what I call the happy bite. Most kids are happy, truly, to eat two or three bites of whatever is on their plate, including the vegetables. And if we would be happy with that, then we would have a different dynamic at the table. They would start to appreciate the food, and over time, they would build up more. I, I, um, I had a really interesting conversation with a friend of mine when my daughter was young, and he asked me if my daughter ate salad. And I said, yes, every night. And, and he he was really jealous at first, and I said, this is what we do. We serve salad every night before we serve the, the rest of the food. I put it on the table. I pick out the two bites that, of the salad that I know she likes. Like, I know she wants a tomato, and I know she wants a, you know, cucumber or something. So I put these two little bites on her plate, and then my husband and I eat our salads, and she eats her salad, and we do that every night. And um, he said to me, well, that's not really eating salad. I could do that with my kid. But he didn't do that. 
And the reason I did that was because that was where my daughter was happy. That was the happy bite. And now, years later, she eats salad and she eats the whole salad. <laughs> because what I was trying to do was build up the habit of eating salad, first of all, and an appreciation for the food as something that you enjoy, not something that you eat because you have to. And dread. And dread, exactly. And so if we think of the long term, I would rather on all fronts that we're teaching our children the right habits, even if we're, we're compromising our few bites of vegetables today. And I want to tell you something, that those two bites or three bites that parents wrangle into their kids aren't enough nutrition to make any difference anyway. So it's just a place where parents feel they, they can re, reassert you know, a little bit of a win and a little bit of feeling that they're doing the right thing. Instead, this is what I really propose, which is that we start making fruits and vegetables show up in very small quantities all through the day. So two or three bites of fruit or a vegetable at breakfast, two okay. or three bites of fruit or vegetable at snack, at lunch, at snack, at dinner, adds up to more bites of fruits and vegetables than if you just hold on to and wait until dinner and then start fighting with our kids. Now, a lot of parents don't want to do that because they, they think, well, you know, that means I'm going to be fighting with my kids all the time. But that's one of the places where you have to make the change. You know, we can pull out uh, grapes or grape tomatoes for a mid-morning snack, and if our child doesn't want to eat them, then he or she can wait until lunch, that's a good place to go back to the structure of eating that we were talking about before and say, well, that's okay. It's only the fighting that makes it bad. Our children need the freedom to say they don't want to eat before they will actually voluntarily start eating the food that we want them to eat. If they're not allowed to say they don't want to eat and they have to eat, then we are held hostage because if they have to eat and they're not going to eat what we provide, we have to provide the food that they want. And that ties the parental hand. That's so, the dynamic that has to change. I hear what you're saying. It's, so you're saying for the new food, that was a snack because it may not be a necessary meal. It's a snack. And they're tr you would like to introduce another fruit and it's a grape and it's during a snack time. But what if they are really hungry and they have that meltdown? Yeah, I think you misunderstand because I'm not suggesting that you offer a new food at snack time. I'm, that's an entirely different thing. Okay. The, the new foods, are, once your child becomes a good taster, you might introduce a new food at snack time. But in the, in the training period where we're just teaching kids to be good tasters, then new foods are only for tasting. They're not for eating. So what I recommend parents do simultaneously is what I call the rotation rule. So we've already got in place a structure of when there's food and when there's not food, right, the eating zones rule. We're, also, we're doing the little pea-sized tastings and exploring the senses of new foods. And now we add this other element, which is called the rotation rule. So parents make a mistake about thinking that variety means new foods when variety just means different foods. Mm, so okay. what I really recommend that parents do is implement the rotation rule, which is simple. Don't eat the same food two days in a row, except for milk. Um, but what that means is most parents get into a rut, and for so many good reasons, you know, again, can't spend your whole life in the kitchen. But we serve the same two or three breakfasts. We serve the same two or three lunches. Many kids I know eat the exact same breakfast every day and the exact Lots same lunch. Lots of kids do, yeah. That's, that's right. All the time. And that's right. And parents do that for a couple of reasons. One is it gets the job done. And two is that we understand this idea that kids like things to be dependable, right? So they like routine. But this is a misunderstanding of that idea here because we can transfer the idea of routine to a slightly higher level and make the routine the rotation rule. So kids know, well, if I had it yesterday, I can't have it today, right? So that becomes the routine. The reason that serving the same breakfast every day is related to dinner <laughs> and new foods is that if you think about there are five eating opportunities, let's say, a day. If four of them are dependable 
and the same as I did yesterday. And one is the oddball where I start switching it up. Then what I've taught my children is the routine, of, is the habit of, of monotony, not the habit of variety. They come to expect that most of the time when we eat, we get to eat whatever we want and we get to eat the same thing we had yesterday. And then dinner is the time we fight. <laughs> oh, so, okay. So right? you're, you're targeting that meal. So it puts, you know, that's why dinner is the big daddy of the day, right? And it takes all the heat from the rest of the day. But the other thing is, is that a lot of times um, uh, we can just take the foods that our kids are eating. So you make a list of everything they eat for breakfast, snack, lunch, and dinner, right? And you make a big, long list of it. And then you just system, this is the food that they like. And then you just systematically start switching it up. So if you had cereal for breakfast yesterday, you can have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You could have chicken nuggets. You could have pancakes, but you can't have cereal again. Um, now, I don't recommend that parents do an open-ended, what do you want? I mean, I recommend parents always say, do you want A or B? And that parents make A and B switch, right, so that you don't have the same food every day. But the concept is what I'm trying to get across here because it's through putting a little structure in place where kids start to realize that, that there is an outside external reason for how choices are made other than I want what I want what I want. Okay, right? well, it makes sense. We're reducing some of that arbitrary sort of feeling that kids have about how decisions are made. And if you're only using the foods that your kids can reasonably be expected to eat, if they turn their noses up at it, you know it's just power play. Because if it's also a new food, then you don't know whether they're being controlling or it's because they don't really like chicken cacciatore. Um, but if you're only using bagel and peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you know they both like, the, they like both of those things and you say, well, today for breakfast you can have a bagel or a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and they say, well, I want waffles. And you say, but waffles were yesterday. You can have waffles again tomorrow. It is a way of creating a structure where parents make the big decisions, but children are involved in the decision-making processes as well. So we go back to the place where I was saying that decision-making is like a ball. I mean, power is like a ball where I've got it and now you've got it. Right. But we want to have a new model where we're sharing it. So this is the new model. Parents make the big decision. We're going to use the rotation rule or the big decision. We're going to use the eating zones rule. And then children are allowed to make the small decisions. Which one do you want of this A or B? Do you want to eat now or do you want to wait until the next snack? Those are the decisions that kids can make. So they're part of it. So they're part of it, exactly. And, but what and, do you do when you have more than one child? Like in this case, we're talking about one child, which is fine. Um, but what do you do if you've got them kind of, you've got two children, maybe three, and they're spread out. One's picky, one, you know, has difficulty with, uh, maybe maybe they have an allergy. So that might, you know, they might limit your options and food choices. Is Are there strategies there to juggle all these different, you know, requirements or, or personalities? There we go. Yeah, so we have to we have to figure out how to manage multiple kids just in the eating environment, just like we do. How do we get them out all at the door, and how do we get them to bed? And so, so we do have to think about that. So it's a great question. One answer is that we um, we can uh, make what we offer our kids for food, and we can make those choices. Sometimes they can be individually tailored. So it's not that much more difficult for families who are they're probably already cooking different foods to say, you know, you had cereal yesterday for breakfast, so I'm willing to make you an egg if you'd like one today, or you can have, you know, this other thing I have in the fridge, you know, some yogurt or something. And to say to the other child, you know, you can have a bagel or, you know, if you have all those things in the house. So sometimes we can individually tailor those choices. And actually remembering what they had yesterday is not very difficult. Um, it's a lot easier than remembering who had calcium. Um, but oh, if it's yeah. Difficult, yeah, I would say if, that. But if it is difficult, the children can also say what they had yesterday. I mean, almost everybody remembers what they ate for breakfast uh, yesterday um, if they're younger than you know, me, <laughs> 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 but, 
Um, so that's one strategy. Another strategy is to uh, is to teach children a very important lesson. So if we're talking about allergies, that's a separate issue. But if we're just talking about different taste preferences, one of the things we have to remember is that kids have a lot of different kinds of lessons to learn. Um, they come into the eating arena thinking in immature ways because they're immature, they're kids. And one of the things that most kids uh, come into the eating arena with is this idea that they can eat what they want when they want it. But one of the lessons they need to learn is that sometimes you have to eat a clunker because your brother gets to choose what we're having for lunch kind of idea, right? We share the control over how decisions are made. So one way to do it is to um, let if you have the ability to give kids choices for a given meal, I do not advocate that parents give their kids choices every single time. I mean, the cook is allowed to decide what gets put on the table. So sometimes, though, maybe at lunch, we can, we can pass back and forth who, which kid gets to make the decision. So that's another way to do it. And then when we're having family meals, all we have to do is make sure that there's something on the table that every child can reasonably be expected to eat, even if it means it's, it's rice or it's the potatoes or it's the broccoli, um, and let that child only have that. It's so much better for the long-term health of your kid's eating habits to let your child have a meal where he chooses just to have the, the rolls or, you know, or just to have you know, the rice than to make your kids' separate meals. So that's the approach. It's, it's a mix of different kinds of strategies that I really suggest that parents employ with the idea that we're always teaching our children the, the lessons that they need to learn to be healthy eaters as adults. We so, can't feed them one way as kids and expect them to eat a different way when they grow up. So if you're saying you, you make a meal and maybe one child in, in that said meal would only eat the rice. Mm -hmm. Let it go. Yeah. Now, what if this continually happens, though, where they're always going for, let's say, if it's rice or potato or the rolls? So what you really have to do is allow them these little bite, pea bites of other foods and hopes that they get over the texture fear or, you know, they start to trust or whatever the case may be, so they're not just eating the rice or the, the roll. Right. Well, so the first thing that I would do is I, you're, you're really right on track there. The first thing that I would do is I would make sure. Because that's that, worrisome after a while. Like if they're always just going for the potato or the rice or the roll, you think, I can see where parents would get frustrated. Right. But you have to remember that um, in families where people, where kids are getting separate meals anyway, they're usually eating the same food pretty much every night. So the families where I know where the mother is making a separate meal for the one child who won't eat the regular meal is, is only making the same one or two things. It's either the chicken nuggets or the pizza or something that's coming out of the freezer, right? They're not really making a completely different no, and healthy yeah. and nutritious meal. So the idea that they're eating the same food as an alarming thing, is really just a decoy here because in the other scenario, they're also only eating the one thing. But I get your point. And so what I would say is this, which is, first of all, I would, I would put the effort into constructing the meals that switch up. Remember the rotation rule. So it might be the rice tonight, and it might be the potatoes tomorrow night that the one child is opting to eat. But remember, we're serving food that the kids can reasonably be expected to eat. So I don't think that that would be a problem in the version that I'm sort of describing here. And we have to remember that what we're really doing is teaching our kids to become adventurous through the science experiment of tasting and becoming good tasters. So let's say we fast forward this scenario and we're using the rotation rule and there are other meals for that child. Remember, that child's not eating potatoes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner the child can be, we can stack the deck in our favor. Let's go back to the principle of proportion. We can start serving a, a little bit more fruits and vegetables that that child will eat at the other meals if he or she is opting for only, you know, the side dishes that we're not that happy about at dinner. And then their diet is, is moving in the right direction. So um, don't stress about any one meal. 
it's not about any one meal. It's the long-term habits. And so then we would build on, um, you know, making them into good tasters. And then once you feel that the kids are good tasters, there are strategies that you can use. They're, they're a little bit more complicated than we can really get into here where you can start bringing those new foods to the table. There are things like using a backup for your child to make an occasional switch out of what's available, those kinds of things. Um, but, but that's really sort of down the road. Well, I like the fact that you brought don't stress about any one meal. I think because normally the family meal is going to be dinner and you see them only eating potato. In some cases with parents, that might be the only meal they're really paying attention to the child eating and not thinking, well, did they get this at breakfast? Did they have that for a snack? Did they have this at lunch? Because often with two working parents, breakfast, they may or may not, one parent may see it, the other doesn't. Lunch may be given with a caregiver. They send them to school at an earlier age and they may be served, you know, lunch there. But it's not the only meal they're getting is their dinner. That's right. And the long-term habits, even if it takes two years or something to teach kids to eat proportion, you know, to use proportion, variety, and moderation as their habits, it's much better to work towards those goals than it is to fight about getting three more bites of something into your kid today. And the stress associated with it. Well, right. It ruins the meal. It, it damages the relationship. It makes your children more likely to not like the food you want them to like. It's a completely counterproductive way of being. And it's understandable because we have so much pressure on parents from society, from newspapers, from health officials, from, you know, all these people out there, from your doctor. You know, is your kid getting five fruits and vegetables a day? You know, five servings. We don't even know what that means in terms of actual consumption for kids so that would be a difficult thing and and to have to measure up to that it's stressful for a parent You're, you're trying to do the right thing of course and so what I'm saying is you have to let nutrition live on the back burner for a little while while you think about habits because really when you put if you work on variety let's say you work on variety through the rotation rule using only the foods your kid already eats that's already better than feeding the same food every single day. And once you say that out loud, like as you're saying this, I'm, I'm seeing this perfectly. But when I think when parents get caught in the moment, it's a bit of a panic. So yeah. having a book yeah. and, and yeah. having that support and empowering the parent and showing the bigger picture is so, in, it's so useful. Yes, it's really a mind shift. And so once you make that mind shift from thinking about nutrition to thinking about habits, there becomes a lot more clarity in how to proceed. Well, I'm having my niece and nephew over, and they're going to stay overnight, and they're very young. They're two and four. And just in the, the example you used, in when you order something new off a menu or even something familiar, but it's at a different location, and you ask how it's done and to describe it, you just don't blindly trust. That really <laughs> brought it home for me. So when I have them on the weekend, I'll answer the questions, I'll do all the describing, and I won't stress out. I know what Wonderful. they eat. But you forget these things. You really, sure. and, and that really resonated with me. I thought, I'm still doing that as an adult. Sure. Yeah. And we're all still doing these things, trying new things, um, maybe only having a little bite because we're unfamiliar or uncomfortable with something. And so children are right there also. In fact, they really don't have the years of eating an example and variety and understanding about textures and what's good or bad. They just think, what is this? Right. Right. Or actually, they don't even think, what is this? They think, ooh, I'm not putting that in my mouth. What is that? Right. So they start with the defense. And such good points to bring forward because I think in in just concern and not having the time to sit down and really think about it, we're just thinking about feeding our children in a healthy way. All the stress relates to that, all the pressure, and then the child's got stress stress and pressure from the parent. Not a good thing. Right. Not a good thing at all. Well, these are fantastic tips and, and really bringing forth some things that, you know, I have two kids, they're, they're older now, but I had not thought of any of that. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad. Um, I, I think, you know, I, 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 I would, 
good luck with with your niece and nephew. (laughs) Well, thank you. And these are great building blocks. And as I said, I came from um, a diet as a child that talked about, you know, timing, proportion, and, and variety, and all the rest of it, and how important they were. And really having lived that, the, it gave me such a strong foundation on where I am now. That's so terrific. It is so very true. Thank you very much for joining me today, and uh, we'll talk again soon. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Anita. Thanks. Great tips from Dr. Rose, sociologist, parent educator, and feeding expert. Look at the bigger picture. Don't stress about the little things. And really focus on developing healthy habits that lead to, as she said, a lifetime of healthy eating. For more information, have a look at Dina's website, it's not about nutrition.com, or follow her on Facebook, it's not about nutrition. Thanks for joining me today, and if you'd like to send me an email, please do so at anita at anitacoach.ca and follow me on Twitter at Anita Westlake.